Why, hello there, priests. You have found the hardest book review podcast there is, where we digest life-changing books. We shit out greatness, and we change our lives one book at a time. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready? Let's go. And here we go. Welcome back. This is Troy Hollings with the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Have you ever changed your mind about a food? I remember I never liked sweet potatoes. You know, I always thought they were like really inefficient carrots that you had to fucking cook for some reason. You know, they should just commit and be white. You know, regular white potatoes, way more delicious. And I had that opinion for 10 years. Sweet potatoes, nasty, orange, Trump-like goblin slop. Until one Thanksgiving, I had sweet potato pie with marshmallows, and I liked it. I was like, what the fuck? I, I like this. And I liked it so much that I gave in. And I decided to try sweet potatoes again. And lo and behold, like a battle dog returning to its master, I fucking liked them. That one little taste of sweet potato pie retroactively made me like all sweet potatoes. And now, my praise, I won't go so far as to make that same claim about basketball, because I've always been of the opinion, basketball, basketball, you know, it's like the vegan version of watching a bunch of giants fight over a severed head, but without any of the realism or underlying sexual tension. If I'm in the mood to see severed heads, dude, I'll just go watch some ISIS videos. Their production quality has increased so much over the last few years. Um, what? So it's always been my opinion that basketball, man, it's just like a watered down version of reality and I might as well just drink alone by myself. And I still mostly felt that way when I covered Michael Jordan's biography on this here podcast because in my life, dude, I'm pursuing business success, you know, massive sales success. That's the fucking goal. We'll see if I can pull it off. Fitness. You know, I kind of want to be like Jason Bourne, but, you know, not fucking small. And uh, martial arts. But in this case, since I'm a fucking angry cripple shouting in the void, you know, martial arts is kind of like uh, hunting and then archery. And if it doesn't make me better at those things, bitch, I'm basically not interested. And so going into that episode, I thought, you know, hey, you know, maybe, maybe a book I found inspirational when I was under a similar level of toil as I am right now might give me the strength in my current situation, the sales version of that movie 300. And I had guessed that all I get from that book was inspiration of a super performer. And I did. You know, when you see how Michael was just able to fucking compound at 10% per year for 10 years, you know, when you see his competitiveness, that's applicable to sales. That's applicable to winning at anything in life. But in addition to those lessons, I started thinking and I realized that the skill profile of basketball at the highest levels, I think it's very similar to the skill profile of defensive pistol shooting, the composure under pressure, the fine motor skills, the fatigue degrading your performance, you know, the ability to be able to draw on a well of precision even when every fiber in your being is telling you, choke, pussy out, you're gonna die. And after covering Jordan's biography, just like eating that sweet potato pie, I started to get some whispers. 
Maybe you like basketball. Maybe you like basketball. What? No. What would my parents think? What would my friends think? You know, they're friends with a guy who doesn't like basketball. How will they react if they know I like it? Will they disown me? Will they know that I've always been this way? Was I born like this or did I learn this behavior? Am I going to be an orphan? And those whispers started to become loud voices. But if basketball can teach lessons in how to win in all things, and if it's an almost perfect copy of defensive shooting, I might have to go on record as saying, in the most fucked up and roundabout way in human existence, I might have become a fan of basketball. And now I don't know where this thread will lead, but I'm pulling it. I open myself to basketball, to steal the lessons from the void, to ascend to godhood in all things, both business, personal, life success, and to steal the way from Kobe Bryant and to apply it to the way of the firearm, Yeet Kundo. And with that, I said, fuck it, our boy Roland rides again, and we are covering Kobe Bryant's biography. And now where Jordan was gregarious, you know, a youngest sibling loved by all, still psychotically competitive, but at least somewhat socialized, Kobe Bryant was a feral dog of war. From the moment his mind could form thoughts under the tutelage of his NBA player dad, Kobe Bryant, all he thought about was being better than Jordan. You know, he's in fucking third grade and they're like, what do you want to be when you grow up? He's like, better than Jordan. They're like, who's Jordan? Like, shut up i hate you now because you don't know who jordan is that kid and like a young musashi kobe shackled himself to the path of discipline the path of pain the path of toil and in the process became greater than anyone thought he'd ever be and maybe just maybe surpassed even jordan as the most skilled basketball player to ever walk the fucking earth and the author of this book is none other than our boy Roland Lazenby. Yeah, he rides the night with us again. He's wrote a bunch of books. Uh, I first covered a book from him on on this podcast with the biography on Jordan. Use your mind. Uh, He's 70, maybe like 71 now. I don't know. He just finished an 800-page book about Magic Johnson. And he's gifted with a writing talent rare in humanity and almost unheard of in sports writing. You know, Roland would give a young Ernest Hemingway a half erection, a run for his money, and just a fucking fist fight if it comes to pure writing horsepower and goddamn rugged American handsomeness. Last time we listened to Roland, we, uh, okay, at least me, uh, played a drinking game where we drank every time he was a master of the English language. And that was A, awesome, and B, dangerous since that was a four episode series and i won't lie there was a point during the series where i came out of my body i was i was but okay okay i was i was kind of drunk and i looked at the wall and i thought you know what would jordan do he'd insert his fucking fist into this wall but i fought it down i fought down my wily system one and i held the line as a kusemono should and so my priests it begins again a journey into the center of the earth We'll live among the dinosaurs. We'll learn their language and customs. If we're lucky and we make the cut, we might even be anointed as dinosaur kings ourselves. 
So I command you, discard your hatred of basketball, realize the way is all around us, and if you hold out, if you make it through, this might just be the thing that unlocks three extra inches of hidden penis and allows you to make dogs obey you with a single glance. Into the book. In the beginning, he came across as a fun-loving kid. He wasn't, of course. Kobe Bean Bryant had to work hard to show that nothing bothered him, especially that troubled rookie season. I was there, and I think I means Roland here, goddammit. I was there the night he scored his first NBA field goal, a three-pointer, at Charlotte Coliseum in December of 1996. Later that season, I sat alone with him in an empty locker room, both of us naked as he waited to compete in the slam dunk contest at the NBA's 50th anniversary All-Star Weekend. We passed the time. We discussed his status as the poster child for a generation of new talent. He talked of the difficulties, the expectations, the hazards, the many temptations in big, bad Los Angeles for a player who was just 18 years old. You know, you'll you find a line of women ages 18 to ages 60 who's ready to suck that sweet nectar at any moment all he has to do is glance they talked about how kobe was was pissed about magic johnson getting aids and was ashamed that johnson would later admit to sleeping with three to five hundred people every year i don't know why i didn't say women i'm cool man whatever dog but fucking 500 people every year that's like that, that, that that's like a i don't know like a 20 minute wait in the ride for Disneyland. That's how many people he's fucking shit. But Brian, he wasn't interested. He says, with me, it's simple because there's a lot I want to accomplish in my life. And I added this, I believe, because it's in all caps and not correct English, but it says, and then he said, I ain't going to mess with no whores. So I don't know. I think maybe I'm mad in that, but you know, just go with it. Artistic expression. Indeed, just minutes later, he would leave our relaxed, thoughtful discourse in the locker room to put on an energetic performance and win the slam dunk contest, which turned up the flame on his already white hot ambition. So Roland, I think he wasn't naked, but I don't know. It just helps my mind kind of get there and picture it better if I picture him both naked. But I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of do go whatever within it in your mind. But they're sitting there in the locker room. They're talking. You know, Kobe's like, man. I got to stay away from these sirens. They're just everywhere. And I want to be the man. I don't want to make any mistakes. I'm going to be the best. And Roland's just like, just like breathing heavily, but like pretty happy about it. And then he goes out, Kobe does, not Roland, and wins the slam dunk contest. And that just fuels his white hot ambition. And so, oh God, do I dare? Shall we? Yes. Yes, we shall. We're going we're gonna to once again, drink every time Roland has mastery of the English language. I just want to be the man, Kobe told me, reaffirming his goal of making himself into the NBA's top player. I don't know how I'm going to get there, but I'm going to find a way. And he would. Despite how unlikely such a goal seemed at the time, as he closed in on the end of his career in 2016, Bryant could look back at the numbers he racked up in 20 seasons and declare that he had at least earned a seat at the table with the game's greatest. Though that night, as a rookie in Cleveland, he said that he didn't know how he would get to the top, he had already settled on an answer he had known all along. So what Roland is just narrating is that he's, you know, again, Roland's fucking good at writing, so he's transforming us, he's teleporting us to 
2016 when Kobe's retiring after 20 years of success in the NBA. He's, you know, Roland is foreshadowing that. And then he's saying, like, at the time, you know, when we were both naked and I was talking to him, he didn't know how he was going to get there. But you know what? That's just what he said because in his mind, he'd already settled on an answer of how he was going to get there. He was going to grind his way there, implacably, relentlessly grind away at the challenges of the game night after night, game after game, until he found a dominance born of his ability to outwork everyone else. Drink. (sighs) You know, I was going to get some claws because that's safer, but bitch, I didn't want to go driving, so um, got some Evan Williams. The events of his career, an unprecedented 20 years with a single NBA team, make the case that Bryant aloof and uncompromising brilliant and self-confident has proved himself to be a grand enigma oh my god oh oh sorry roland misread that a grand enigma of american professional basketball he was easily the most driven competitor in the history of the game one who over the seasons quietly gained a reputation among the insiders of the sport as an absolute master of study and intense preparation with a singular focus on detail that astonished those around him so he's an enigma he's a he's a unicorn he's he's stands out from the rest not even in like a way that is just way obviously better uh it's like you're looking at a bunch of mountain peaks and then one of them is fucking glow in the dark and flashing you're like that's what he's doing he's sticking out there and He's, he's just, the thing that makes him flash, the thing that makes him glow in the dark is his fucking drive. Night after night, day after day, for 20 years, 20 years, night after night, day after day, for 20 years, through injury and turmoil, through, through the rupture of one key relationship after another, there would be no price he would not pay to have his greatness. From the earliest age, his father, former NBA player Joe Jellybean Bryant, had sought to establish in his son a supreme confidence. Above all, it remained his trademark. That impenetrable, unshakable self-belief was the one trait where Bryant clearly outranked his contemporaries, said psychologist George Mumford, who had worked, if you remember, that was the dude that worked with Jordan uh, when Jordan was doing his, you know, winning. And, and now he's working with Bryant. And uh, Mumford guesses that the confidence remained in place because Bryant had virtually excluded any challenge to it. He wouldn't allow himself to deal with any contrary view. So, um, you know, it's it's walking us into, you know, what makes this guy so good? And, and you know, Roland, like, takes for granted that we've all watched at least one basketball game with Kobe Bryant in it. I can I can come out and say... Never watched a game with him, okay? So some of this stuff, like Roland's flash-forwarding to his career because everybody knows Kobe retired in 2016. That's news to me, buddy. But he's just explaining that, okay, well, Kobe's fucking different. And the first thing that sets him apart as being different is, dude, he's working like he's getting, he's about to get executed. And the second is he's got this unshakable self-belief that he's actually like managing his own psychology with a delusion to make sure that he performs as best as he can. And so, you know, anytime that there's anything that comes in that's like, hey, you might not be the absolute best that's ever lived, he shuts that shit off. And so Mumford's explaining like, yeah, when he first started talking to Kobe Bryant and working with him, 
Kobe wasn't like night and day better skilled, but his his raw materials uh, of his just like his leading indicators, one could say, his his deluded confidence and his fucking savage work ethic, that set him apart. It was the backbone of his 81-point game, which again, if you know anything about basketball, like which I don't, that's a fucking lot, I think, of his many game-winning shots, of his MVP performances, of his total lack of conscience about the high volume of shots he could take on a given night. It was largely the reason that Bryant made a regular practice over his career of playing through any sort of pain, no matter if it would put the average player on the injured list. The nickname, The Black Mamba, Bryant had seized upon the killer snake in a Quentin Tarantino film as the perfect embodiment of his supposedly similarly remorseless competitive nature. So once again, Roland knows a lot about basketball, but uh, Kobe's nickname, the, the first nickname is Showboat. And that's what Shaq, you know, big giant guy in the commercials, he likes to blow on people in interviews sometimes. Uh, that guy, um, he kind of tongue-in-cheek and derogatorily, if that's a word, called Kobe Showboat. Well, after Kobe got to a certain point of his, his career, he changed his own nickname to the Black Mamba, which, if he wasn't so fucking good, would be kind of stupid. You know, like, imagine that you're, I don't know, at a, at a company picnic, and, and you, you meet someone, and they're like, oh, what's your name? Like, oh, well, my name's Jeff, but people call me the Black Mamba. Like, Jeff, do, do, do people really actually call you that? Like, yeah, people do. Like, oh, okay, who? Like, well, me. Like, well, Jeff, that doesn't fucking count, but Kobe's good enough? He got away with it. Later in his career, he came to portray this process uh, of, of becoming that Black Mamba as much about embracing and channeling the inner villain as positive in one's competitive nature. He laughed deeply when HBO's Real Sports confronted him with the former teammate Steve Nash's declaration that Bryant was a motherfucking asshole. And Kobe's like, eh, true. And we see again, dude, psychotically competitive. You know, so years later, when the blood and grime is gone and they're getting interviewed on TV, and uh, one of the hosts is like, let me ask a, let me ask a good question here. Uh, what do you say about Steve Nash calling you a motherfucking asshole? And with great mirth and a chaotic heart, Kobe laughs deeply and he says, yeah, yeah, that's about right. You know that guy who sniffed the doll from Mulan? He's my son. Like, what? He's Asian. But don't worry about it. He's my son. And then Kobe just like starts looking at him and then the interview is done. If nothing else, Bryant's final NBA game in 2016 echoed his love of the game along with its showboat elements as he fought through exhaustion to punctuate his career by making basket after basket and scoring 60 points in his last NBA game when he's old as fuck while leading his NBA Lakers <laughs> NBA Lakers uh, to an amazing come from behind victory over the Utah Jazz. For many years, he had been the city's leading man in all things basketball. With his great skills now badly diminished, he somehow managed to close the final chapter with the most theatrical of flourishes, displaying himself as the ultimate mind-blowing entertainer within a city that values theatric ability above all else. What follows, Roland says, is showboat. It's a book. <laughs> Duh. His effort to capture his fascinating story 
in many ways a cautionary tale relayed by witnesses throughout the years. So get ready, Roland says. We're about to learn us up on some greatness. Introduction, part two, I guess. The glistening, oversized, dick-like, uh, uh, well, that I was translating, phallic-styled golden orb of the National Basketball Association's 2001 championship trophy is nestled loosely in his arms. It's a prize that Kobe Bryant covets like no other. The ultimate treasure for the relentlessly obsessive competitors and the alpha males who are drawn to the American pro game. So, Rowan's a master. He's jumping around, but he's back in... So, Kobe uh, retired in like 2016. He started playing in like 1999 or something. 90, whatever. Close to then. And in 2001, uh, we're not flashing there. And he's, he's holding a dick-like trophy, but that means he just won something. Even though it's June and he's in a steamy locker room, he's wearing a multicolored special edition leather jacket that has a patch for each and every one of the LA franchise's umpteen titles, signifying his place among the many greats of the team at a mere 22 years of age. So he got a custom jacket made before they won that had every single patch, and he's got a patch ready for when they win. Now they just won. He's going to put a fucking patch on. Like that, I, I got to, I, I I remember that story I told about failing testing uh, long ago. I fucked up the board breaks. But the worst part, the worst fucking part of that was my instructor was like, damn, I didn't think you'd fail. I already bought your belt. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I should cut my dick off. Like, that he he already bought the jacket to win the championship before they did the championship so that's that's kind of the mindset of the fellow that we're dealing with but he's sitting there hugging the dick and there's every reason for him to be tossing his head back baring his gums and laughing and celebrating with everyone else he's on the dizzying fast track to his dreams with each grand success now seemingly whizzing by like highway signs, he has been raised and cultured and coddled by a family that has long deeply immersed itself in basketball. A family that has nourished Bryant along with the immense expectations of his impending greatness. Drink. So it's the culmination of his fucking life. And he should be so happy. He's sitting there. You know, because his parents put so much pressure on him. His dad was an NBA player. His life was fucking basketball and sometimes we see these uh coddled kids as spoiled but um rather than spoil him his parents actions had the opposite effect serving to spur him onward from a very young age in the pursuit of his dream since his startling emergence into the public spotlight as a teen in 1996 bryant has stood before the public as a bright young man polite and polished in so many ways yet possessed by an otherworldly confidence that is off-putting to nearly everyone who meets him, leaving some on occasion to doubt even his fundamental sanity. From his teen years, Kobe Bryant had been shockingly bold in his prediction that he's going to make himself the greatest basketball player ever. So what Roland's saying is that like this dude who just won, who should be happy, who should be celebrating, because part of this is like an exploration into the fucking psyche of someone like Kobe Bryant to see if there's anything we can learn. So that guy isn't actually universally well-loved. And, and Roland says, it is off-putting to nearly everyone who meets him, 
is is his insane fucking confidence so you know like off-putting to nearly everyone like imagine if you, you always have shit in your pants you know that smell that's going to be off-putting to nearly everyone now there's gonna be some fiends that like want to hang out with you and sniff you but like we're not talking about those people and that is like kobe bryant and all of a sudden now he just won rather than immerse himself in the revelry he has moved quietly to the side he sits in an antiseptic locker room bathroom stall braced by its chrome railing the title around him the color of the fog along this fucking river got okay i can't handle that one rolling good try that's that's on me my fault couldn't do it his face is in his hand his gaze cast to the floor lost in a thousand yard stare he is utterly forlorn and alone so he just won but his face is in his hand he's staring at the floor thousand yard stare so like world war one soldiers he's utterly forlorn and alone preoccupied and torn by the sudden backwash of emotion that has been flooding over his entire life in the recent months god damn it drink also roland why are you peeping kobe in the bathroom stall since a young age when he rode on bus trips with his father's second tier italian league team and promised the old man and another of his t his father's teammates that he was going to be far better than either of them brian's existence has been a singular almost inhuman pursuit of that greatness so he's flashing to he's we he won the shit but from a young age like five bryant's goal his entire existence his identity but every single task that he's done since he's fucking five has been a singular almost inhuman like a robot like i'm a i'm a basketball optimized robot pursuit of greatness millions of schoolboys in his generation had stoked dreams of matching the greatness of michael jordan but only one among the millions had displayed the iron will and drive to, per to pursue the game as Kobe Bryant did. And that's the point. Millions of people are like, man, it'd be really cool. It's like I played rugby in college. And we'd always have enough people for the games because people want to just come play rugby games. It was super fun. We wouldn't have enough people for practice. And so everybody wanted to say, oh, I play rugby. Oh, I want to be better than Michael Jordan but no one was willing to tattoo their eyeballs to be better than Michael Jordan. Now, it turns out that's not a requirement, but it's a metaphor. Get with the program. Now, Brian's face in this moment of triumph provides confirmation that there's no price he will not pay, no sacrifice he will not make to, as he explains it, be the man, the most dominant player in the game. So he's the only one of millions who's willing to willing to grind that hard and in that moment when roland's like peeking under the stall i don't know why uh brian's face just confirms it there's nothing that he wouldn't do to be the man most recently he has offered up his immediate family on the altar of his quest it is if so on the altar meaning he sacrificed his immediate immediate family it is a family widely admired as a model of achievement and wholesomeness, yet it now lies in tatters around him, the victim of his unflinching desire. He was like the Russians and the Romanovs, observed some guy. He got rid of everybody. God damn it. Okay, drink. Roland, you got to behave, dude. I, I can't I can't be punching the wall or buying shit during this episode, but we're going to... We're here. We're professionals. Okay, we're back. Yet this, this very determined and willful young star had still deemed it necessary 
to move forward without his loved ones. What he's basically saying is he's just, he's given us a little bit of foreshadowing that Kobe's sitting there, he just won, uh, but he's not super happy. It's like the culmination of his life, but right before this, to, he cut every else, everything else out of his life. He abandoned his family. He, he fucking, we'll talk a little bit about it, but um, we're just seeing some, some Kobe Bryant guy sitting there like, like just experiencing the consequences of his actions but to understand what made kobe great we got to go back one generation to his dad perhaps it truly was a run-of-the-mill traffic stop about a tail light as the officers would later report but the context of the moment was strange and tense and so there's a really good description here but i'm, I'm just gonna do it okay i can't i, I don't want to read no fucking hundred pages here so his dad Joe Jellybean Bryant is a, a good basketball player. Everybody knows him. He's not the best, but he's flashy. He's funny. He's like that hilarious kid who like is not that good at fighting, but really good at talking shit. But he's like pretty fucking good at fighting. Uh, Joe is in, in the metaphor, whatever. But he gets stopped by the cops. So he gets out and the cops are like, hey, sir, you got a taillight out. And then he's six, seven. And they're like, whoa, so you're tall as fuck. Uh, yes, yes. And then for some reason, he panics he's like looking at the cops and he's just like gotta get out of here and like a magic trick he's like gotta get out of here and then he just got back in his car and he started running he started driving away and the officers were like what it was just a taillight after him he must be hiding something well he kind of was because he was with his secret girlfriend and had a bunch of cocaine in the car but like eh, who does who hasn't done that you know and so He's, he's running from the cops. He crashes. The cops are like, sir, get the fuck out. He gets out. He runs on foot. He loses his shoes. Shit is crazy. In less than half an hour, the ample good fortune of Joe Bryant's young existence had morphed into a world of shit. So he gets arrested. So this, this golden boy, Kobe's dad, runs from the cops with cocaine in the car and gets arrested. Jelly Bean's anguish time in custody that night brought the slightest inkling of a revelation. Years earlier, his grandmother had prophesied that somebody in the family was going to be fabulously rich and famous. That night, in May 1976, was Joe Bryant's first hint that the person in the prophecy might not be him. So, fucking Roland, dude, drank. So, Roland did such good research that he figured out that in Kobe Bryant's family, his grandma was like, I'm a witch. I'm like, grandma. No, you're not. Where are your clothes? What the fuck? Roland, why are you here? But while she was doing that, she gave a prophecy to Roland. And she and she said, someone in this family will be rich and famous. And that prophecy where, where normally would have been discarded, but Grandma's a naked witch. And so people listened and they remembered. And then Joe, Jellybean Bryant, Kobe Bryant's dad, gets there, gets in the NBA, starts getting rich and famous. And everybody in the family is like, aha, the prophecy has been fulfilled. Grandma, you're right. And then, but then this, Roland's saying, is the first inkling that maybe that prophecy is actually right still, but it's not Joe. Maybe it's not him. Maybe it's someone else. Maybe it's fucking Kobe. Uh, and then Roland loves basketball, apparently. So um, there's 50 pages that I'm going to summarize as his dad was really good at basketball now Roland jumps us back a tiny bit in time still talking about Kobe Bryant's dad uh, before he got arrested before he was in the NFL he played in a high school named LaSalle and 
It was during his years at LaSalle that Joe Bryant fell under the sway of a striking, statuesque young woman named Pam Cox. Even the name suggestive. Much to her father's dismay, Ms. Cox could have been a lawyer or something, remarked Smallwood, uh, some fucking sports guy. Instead, she wound up with crazy Joe Bryant. So Joe is this wild man in high school and fucking meets this beauty who's super smart could have been a lawyer but she ends up with crazy joe and uh joe has a cousin named chubby or something but uh yet neither joe nor chubby could provide the key personality element that would make kobe bryant one of the game's all-time greatest competitors so he's saying he's painting the picture of how kobe's parents got together it's you know uh fucking wild joe and then pam and Pam's like a straight killer, like hot and smart and just like going to do a lot of awesome shit. But in thinking about Joe and Joe's cousin, they're good basketball players. Joe's really good, but that's not enough. That's necessary, but not sufficient to ultimately explain Kobe. Because there's one thing that Kobe had that a lot of people didn't have. That killer. That killer is Pam Cox, man. Explains some guy named Mo. An opinion repeated time and again among the couple's friends. She's a beautiful woman, but there's a side of her that's cold-blooded. A killer. Pam Cox also had uncommon personal discipline, another key trait she would instill in her son. She's the one who made Joe walk the straight and narrow. Joe's like a big kid. You couldn't do nothing but like him. So I was a little bit roundabout, Roland, but we, we forgive you here. So he's just painting the picture that uh, the, maybe the, some of the athletics and the basketball skill came from his dad makes sense got it but that but that prison shank ability that fucking night and day like vampire daywalker type shit like just the savagery that came from his mom and in good tradition of a dumb fucking origin story they really love beef and so they named kobe after some beef what mattered more than his name though was the gene pool paul westhead observed pam so his mom came from an athletic family chubby someone had game he was no slouch he was skilled he didn't have the size of joe but he was a skilled player if, if you're if you're looking at like okay if you're projecting ahead the ultimate child that comes from that marriage you would say there's a lot of talent there you know so you look at pam super athletic joe in the nba like man their kid's gonna be good but beyond the dna the process for great competitors often seems to begin with perfectionist mothers uh pam Cox Bryant, okay, two names, got it, had remained a bit of a mystery because unlike Michael Jordan's mother, Dolores, Pam Bryant never wrote a book, never graced magazine covers, she never toured the world in support of family health, she always maintained a low-key life. But the greatest evidence of her perfectionist bent came with her family itself. Her brood of three were well-groomed, well-dressed, and well-raised. The two daughters and the son, exemplary in manners, speech, behavior, bearing, countenance from an early age. If other people raised their children the way the Bryants raised their three, we would have a lot more productive people in this world, said somebody. And her approach even extended to the notion of achievement. The presence of their individual athletic gifts was never allowed as any sort of excuse for her children. They were expected to do their schoolwork and to be dutiful and responsible. From the very first moments, Kobe Bryant had been raised in a family admired by others, and not just in the Philadelphia papers, but wherever they went. So, he's from a good family. Like, he's got the crazy good genes, but also, 
you know, they're, they're, that perfectionism that he's got, he get that gets that from his mom, who was iron-willed, man. Like, yeah, okay, yeah, you're good at basketball. Guess what? Turn in your fucking homework, kid. You live here. You want you want to still live here? Great. Turn in your homework. Like, that's the focus that had to come with it. Uh, and Kobe's just kind of like reflecting back on that, and he says, from the enthusiasm, from the enthusiasm aspect, my love to play, I'm more like my father, Bryant said. But on the court, I'm more like my mother. She's more like a pit bull. Her temper's like that. He got to smack his hands together to make a sharp crack. Very competitive. So I got the best of both worlds. So he got the athletics from his dad, the killer instinct from his mom. Uh, mother, and sh- mother and son shared pleasant personalities for the most part, right down to their demeanors, though, that could turn surprisingly cold in a flash. That coldness could be startlingly off-putting to those who encountered it. And combined with their capacity for, sh- for sudden sharp anger, both mother and son would use it to define the parameters of their lives. So you're just saying that, you know, this this pleasant personality on the surface, but with this kind of boiling, boiling anger uh, below that if needed, hell freezes over their cold, you're dead to them. And that's all helpful, but the primary driving element was the perfectionism. Tex Winter, that old guy who's really good with the triangle, is still old, and he's still hanging out with basketball teams. He's older now. He's like 80, but he starts to work with Kobe. Tex Winter, the veteran coach who worked so closely with both Jordan and Bryant, would often say it was chief among the many fundamental traits of the two superstars, their intense perfectionism. Dude, Roland weaves quotes into his writing so fucking well. Like, I'm guessing that he he worked as a newspaper or worked at a newspaper or like a sports journalist because like it's a very journalist thing to do but respect man yeah text winner dude good point <sighs> and we're like skipping through his dad's fucking history still and he's kind of like a child now but uh his dad kind of said he was really sorry and he just kind of just something came over me and like the judge forgave him for running for the cops uh but it was that was kind of like the the death blow to his career in america they moved to italy and um, doing good, man. He, he had a lot of fun. Uh, his dad was was better in Italy. So like, it's like he moved somewhere where he was the star, even though in America he was he was meat. Um, and Kobe's there, and so Kobe doesn't know anybody, and he's fucking just playing on these basketball teams. And so Roland found a picture of Kobe in Italy, and he's and he's describing it. The dark face appears amused caught in a half smirk amid a backdrop of caucasian players at a basketball camp in italy so a lot of white a lot of white faces one black face that black face is kobe he stands alone at the lower right corner of the photo in front of two rows of beaming italian faces they're older than he is but as the look on his face seems to show a young kobe bryant knows he's already far better than any of them will ever be above them all standing tall is the smiling hero joe bryant the celebrity guest of the camp his face was awash in its own light god damn it roland i'm not going to drink on that one but very good so looking at this picture and you see it's just like it's just illustrative of the life that he was that he was that he was living in where he's on this basketball team everybody's two years older but he's better than they will ever be already now and in the backdrop, allowing him to do anything and go anywhere is his dad, 
who's a professional Italian basketball player and hero and a crazy person named fucking Joe. So imagine the environment that you're growing up in, you know, your dad, you move around a bunch. Your dad's a professional. This is his job. Like, son, do you want to take up the family business? It's basketball. You live in Italy. And so you guys, we, as we um, wind this episode down, I'll, I'll share a, I'll share a story that uh, I kind of understand that because I grew up in Korea. I grew up in Belgium. Then I moved to Alabama, which wasn't like much easier to understand what the fuck's going on because everyone's like, I'm from Huntsville. Like they would greet you. They'd say Alabama or Auburn. And, and I'm like, what the fuck are you saying? Who are you? Where am I? I want some kimchi. So I grew up I grew up in that situation and we moved a lot and I just remember the constant feeling of like that first day of school feeling of like man this is going to be kind of we're going to see what happens. I that constant feeling of being overwhelmed all the time. You know, not knowing what to expect from the next day of school, being unable to predict what was going to happen at all because it's like i can maybe if i grew up in america like okay i can kind of understand what's going on like oh yeah you know first grade's the same as second grade like fifth grade's pretty similar but like if you do first grade in belgium and fifth grade in alabama like yeah, it's way different and so um i was always the new kid sometimes i didn't even like know the fucking language so they're like dot, 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 dot. and i'm like hello i don't know man i'm just here until the day is done just like don't kill me but what that led me to was like this flexibility so like i developed this defense mechanism this approach this strategy to just handle chaos you know so if, if every day is different and the only constant is like everything's different well I just better learn to adapt. So like, I just kind of learned how to make friends and I learned to just like, well, you know, it's like, it'll be fine. And now I've got a willingness to throw myself in situations where like, I really don't have any idea what's going to happen because it can't be as fucking bad as going to kindergarten in Korea, bro. Like getting driven by our Korean driver to school. Everybody's Korean. <laughs> And no one knows what the fuck is going on. It, well, I didn't at least. And they're like, go. And now I'm like away from my family. I'm just like freaking out. And, and I'm like five. Okay. So, or, or being nine. I remember being nine years old, coming back to America the first time, not knowing the Pledge of Allegiance. I was like, what is this? What the fuck is going on? Everybody's saying it. And I'm like, what? And so that led to our family being pretty close and it led to me at least and my sister to develop a deep obsession with reading books and so i would think that a lot of what i just described is pretty similar with kobe but instead of books he had basketball because when everything's confusing when everything's unclear when you're like what the hell are you saying man i don't even understand your language the thing that he could always come back to the thing that was always consistent was basketball you know a layup is always a layup no matter what country you're in but Kobe and his dad are pretty different folks. You know, though, though Jelly Bean was always smiling, friends from that era would remember that Kobe was already just the opposite, especially any time he took to the court. His face was always serious, always serious when he played. No smiles, very determined. When he was eight and I was 11, we were in the same basketball league, some person says. The rest of the kids wanted to play, and he was like, I want to win. So he's playing three years. He's like playing in a league of kids that are three years older than him. And they all want to just hang out and fuck around. And he 
is eight. And he's like, I have to fucking win. One time, uh, there was only 30 seconds left. We were down by two. And he was like, give me the ball. Give me the ball. He was into it, he said. He was always that way. When the game was on the line and you're put in that situation and your back's against the wall, Kobe said, I come out fighting. It's that fight or flight mentality and I've always been a fighter. And so he's in Italy for like nine years or something and, and he's skilled, he's doing well. But I think the equally interesting thing is the mentorship and training by his dad, a pro player. Um, you know, even though his dad's not like leading him through all these practices and shit, like even just modeling the concept that performing under massive pressure is possible that's a huge leg up you know so like if kobe's like man i lost a game and his dad's like hey it's okay man look that last game you know there were thirty thousand fans watching me i missed the game winning shot it's okay just stick to the process you can do it and then look at this this next game i made it you can make it just practice and so a young kobe all of that doubt that normal kids would have because like i don't even know if it's possible like does the nba even exist Kobe just doesn't even have that because his dad's like, yeah, yeah, it's fine, dude. Here, just just do this, man. I can I can help you. Just as in America, the Bryant family would move several times in Italy, which further served to establish alienation as a norm that would last his entire life. As a child, he'd always struggle to make friends. Then, as soon as he did, it seemed like it was time to tell them ciao. So, dude, I fucking get that so much. Um... I'm self-sufficient now, basically. Like I've got some great friends, uh, s- some really good, amazingly close friends. But you know, growing up, man, I would make these really good, deep friendships, and then two years later, you're like forced to leave them, and so you end up being like friendly with a lot of people, but not like great friends with anybody because you know, kind of like in the same way that it uh, frontline military unit in World War One. And you're taking a hundred percent casualties. Now some new guy comes in. You're like, "Hey, bro, you don't even have a name. I don't even want to know your name. I will learn your name in one month. Talk to me if you're still alive." That's a little bit of like Kobe's attitude to these friends, and so that further puts him into himself. And at the same time that all that's happening, he's reinforcing his confidence. Also boosting Kobe's confidence was his full exposure to the game at a young age, including traveling to games on the team bus with the old man. Each pro team also had its own youth league, and playing on the youth team and going to practices with his father rapidly built the base of his understanding of the game. So he's like, his dad is on these pro teams, and his son is coming along and playing in all these pro team leagues. And he's also gets like more access to the pro players than he would if he was, you know, just a normal person on the league because his dad is on the team. And so like just that exposure and being able to just ask basic questions from as young as you, uh, you know, like I remember, so my, my dad, successful executive guy at a big giant company, and he's like, he's retired now, but dude, he still emails me like in, in corporate executive freehand like tx or like np like thanks no problem like dad just i don't know man you're too old to change but just just jail bro you're fine you're retired dude chill but from the beginning i remember like if i had a question about investing i'm like hey dad but the market's really down 
why why are you investing in it that's isn't isn't that bad and he's like no 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 when that when and, and he it hit hit me with like a warren buffett quote when i was like 11 he's like be fearful when other people are greedy and greedy when other people are fearful and so like i got to take that idea and like i'd been exposed to fucking warren buffett like that idea at 11 and then you know i'll be like if i'm 24 like that is per it has been you know it has been percolating in my head and uh you know just the the outlook and understanding of the game kobe had the same concept um and uh there's a lot of opinion that kobe's the foundation of kobe's game came from those italian league players from from playing in italy you know he was he was able to play the all-around game over there and learn every aspect uh, throughout his career if he was deficient in something Bryant would display the work ethic to build every element of his competitive portfolio with an almost manic insistence, another product of his Italian experience. So he's in Italy where I'm over there reading fucking books and playing Game Boy. He's practicing basketball. In fact, he never seemed to stop working at the game, even at the very young age. If he wasn't playing the game, then he was watching videotape of NBA stars remembered some guy kobe always wanted to play basketball always over the next several years he would show that he had already grasped powers of concentration and developed what he would later call the code he knew from an early age that he wanted to be a professional basketball player which would mean scant little inefficiency in his resume so he's over there studying fucking tape and he's living by the code when he's like nine while Jellybean felt constrained by the NBA, he quickly took to the competition in Italy and found stardom, averaging 30 points per game. Everybody loved him. And so that's where Kobe is. You know, his, his time in a foreign land had already begun to reinforce the isolationist nature that Kobe shared with his mother, spurred along by his desire to shoot alone and work on his game. So Kobe's solace was to find a basketball hoop and drill. Like, that's some Musashi shit. That's some samurai goes in the fucking mountain and returns three years later type shit. Soon, Joe was even subscribing to a service that delivered video of basketball games directly. Joe and Kobe would pour over them together, taking note of all the key subtleties, the footwork, a primer of drop steps and jabs and V-cuts, the various offensive styles. So, I'm sure there's a skill of watching tape, and he's learning that from his professional basketball player dad, who also like the way that his dad feels like he's being a good dad and the way that Kobe feels like he's being a good son is to do a good job at watching tape together. He's fucking eight and he's freeze framing and watching tape. So now imagine by the time he gets to the Lakers, just imagine how skilled he would be at breaking down film. And so we're in it, my priests. We're in it. We're going to wrap this one up. This one done. Next one coming up. We're still in Italy. He's about to come back from Italy. And he's about to begin this meteoric rise where the, the public pressure on him outpaces his skills for a while. But that hunger, that drive, that hard, hard will, that'll win eventually. But if you want that, if you want to learn, if you want to come with me, into the trees. You have to tune in next time on the next episode of the Curiously Disagreeable Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much. 
And that's my pretties is another episode down of the Curiously Disagreeable podcast. Check us out at CuriouslyDisagreeable.com, the Troy Hollings on Instagram, or wherever the fuck you get your podcasts. The end. <laughs>